11, John chapter 11, and if you're using the church Bible, the reading is on page 1078, 1078. And we're coming for the second time to the 11th chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 11, uh, reading this evening from verse 17. Jesus uh, has come to the village of Bethany, uh, having heard that his friend Lazarus is ill, the brother of uh, Mary and Martha, and having deliberately delayed uh, rather than gone and explained something of a mystery to the disciples uh, that uh, He has done this deliberately and He's done it gladly uh, so that they may come to trust Him. So now uh, He has arrived. Now, when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met Him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever You ask from God, God will give You. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met Him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, "'Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died.' When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, Where have you laid Him? And they said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how He loved Him. But some of them said, Could not He who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Well, last week, right at the end of the exposition, I happened to refer to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. We'd been thinking about the way in which Jesus presented Himself to His disciples in the first part of this passage, having heard that Lazarus was sick, knowing that Lazarus uh, was actually going to die, and exercising what seemed to us to be the most extraordinary emotional restraint and not going to see Him. And uh, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 tells us uh, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then, to my total astonishment, we all burst into a song of a hymn I'd never heard, but a chorus I'd known since I was a young teenager. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. And apparently, uh, you were all swaying around, and the more uh, Plymouth brethren you were, the more you were swaying. I take it that that was a statement of poetic license on the part of our minister uh, this morning. Jesus is the same. But, you know, the big question is this, the same what? Or if I can put that question another way, if somebody asked you, what is Jesus like? How would you answer? Or if you're from the Northeast, fit like is Jesus. And one of the things we've been seeing in John's gospel is how important the statements he made in the opening 18 verses are. And especially, and this comes to a climax in this chapter, especially what John says about him in chapter 1 and verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Four statements. He was the Word, He became flesh, He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And this chapter, chapter 11, is essentially the climax of the first half of the gospel. 
It is the seventh of seven signs. It leads to a seventh plot against the life of Jesus. And in this chapter, the the raising of Lazarus is the single event that explains the ecstasy of the triumphal entry and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Without this incident, the triumphal entry is almost inexplicable. And without this incident, the crucifixion of Jesus is, at the human level, inexplicable. It is this event that brings Jesus' self-revelation to a climax and precipitates, deliberately precipitates on His part, because He knows that His hour has come, precipitates His crucifixion, therefore His resurrection, and therefore our salvation. And so, it shouldn't surprise us that it's in this passage in the first half of John's gospel that we see John's clearest answer to the question, so if he's the same yesterday, that is, during the days of his ministry, and today, from the point of view of the author of Hebrews, right today, and forever, forever more, then perhaps supremely this is the chapter to which we would turn to be able to say to ourselves, this is what Jesus is like. And it's especially so because of the interaction between Jesus and this little family that He obviously cared for so much, loved, had a a deep affection for, uh, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And one of the things that begins to emerge, and in fact, is the, is the rationale for what happens, the explanation for what happens, the, the vindication, the apology for what happens, is that what we are seeing here is the Word made flesh, dwelling among people and showing His glory. And this is the reason why Christian people, when they read John chapter 11, however amazing this event is, they don't find it an intellectual difficulty. And the reason they don't find it an intellectual difficulty is because of the main character, because of His identity. The incarnation is the great miracle. In a sense, it's a greater wonder than the creation of the universe at the beginning of time. When God, as it were, steps into the creation, when the Son of God remains the Son of God and yet simultaneously becomes part of the creation, He is brought into being. And it shouldn't surprise us that when these things are true, as the fathers of the church said, when it becomes clear that Jesus is fully and truly God and truly and fully man, that something like the resuscitation, the bringing back to life of a dead friend is completely within His powers, that the one who spoke the creation into being is therefore able to speak into a dead body and bring it back to life. 
And so, in a sense, yes, there is a wonder, obviously an amazing wonder. We behold His glory in this. But uh, if we want to answer the question, what is Jesus actually like? Uh, we've got to look not only at the, the marvel of the resuscitation, but the grace of the engagement between Jesus and uh, the different people who surround Him. So, I want us to think, first of all, and this is especially uh, through to verse 33, from verse um, 17 through to verse 33, I want us to think about Jesus' personal ministry. Uh, we know these two ladies, although not Lazarus, really, from the other Gospels. Um, and in keeping with what we learn of them, for example, in Luke's Gospel, John's portrayal of them seems to me to be very much in character. I don't know if it's ever crossed your mind that John doesn't tell us. Uh, I wonder if they were twins. Um, Martha and Mary sounds kind of twin-like. But whether they were twins or not, there is something about their lives that's, that's not unusual in a family. And that is that although they are sisters and look as though they're devoted to one another, it looks as though they have kind of woven themselves round one another. Uh, those of you who have watched your children grow up see how often this happens, uh, that uh, the next one down the line will kind of weave his life into the spaces that the older one has left. And so, if you're parents, you look at your children, and you scratch your heads, and you say, how can such different personalities have emerged from the same life stream? Uh, because you're more likely to notice the differences because you're near enough to do that. And that's very evident, isn't it, with uh, these women? Uh, and it, what is also rather striking is the way in which Although Jesus is all-sufficient for all the needs of all of His people all of the time, the same yesterday, today, and forever, He also deals with His people individually. And I think you see that here. Uh, the news comes. There's kind of advanced news. Jesus, has, Jesus is near town, and active Martha is on her feet uh, in a sense, taking control. Actually, in some ways here, we've got a little portrayal in this family of how, how differently people even in the same family can respond to death in the family. You know how one will, will kind of blossom and take control, and, and others of us, uh, we, we kind of sink into ourselves. And this was very much in keeping with these two women. Martha is, she's out there going to meet Jesus. And Jesus has this engagement with her, practical Martha. And her faith, actually, in the course of the conversation, pretty clear her faith is fairly straightforward. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. I don't know how she knew that. Jesus was in lots of places where people died. So, it wasn't really true, was it? She was kind of assuming something. 
But there's this kind of take charge of the situation. If you were here, our brother would not have died. And then Jesus' stunning response. Um, it's really it's kind of amazing. He, he speaks to her as it were. He engages her at the level of her personality. And he says, quite simply, your brother will rise again. And you see what he's doing. He's, he's, kind of, he's kind of testing her. Actually, if you just step back and realize how much he's been testing her, this presumably young woman who knows, believes that if Jesus had been there, her brother would not be dead, and now her brother's dead, and the reason her brother's dead if Jesus would have saved him if he had been there is because she doesn't know the reason. But Jesus has actually deliberately delayed in coming. It tells you a great deal about Jesus, doesn't it? It tells you, it tells you in a sense, what He is prepared to risk in our lives to do something better in our lives. And she responds perfectly properly, I know He will rise again, verse 24, in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus responds in a way that she has to she has to kind of reach into to try and untangle what He is saying. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, those two things belong together. He is the resurrection, and He is also the life. And it rather looks as though He's saying two things in that one statement. That is the one that He is the one who brings resurrection life in the future, but He is also the one who gives eternal life in the present. And He seems to make that clear by what follows, whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's resurrection. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. That's eternal life. And so she says, I know He'll rise on the last day. And Jesus is really saying, look, Martha, the last day is not simply an event. The last day is something that flows from Me. And because it will flow from Me on the last day, new life, new resurrected physical life, do you understand that it is possible for new life to flow from me also in the present day? Actually, you know, there's a, this is it's really very profound and, and um, it might not be all that relevant to us here, but you know when people talk about the future, you know what they're all taken up with? When will Christ come? Where will Christ come? What will happen to the Jews? Will there be a tribulation? What does the rapture mean? What does the millennium mean? Do you notice the one thing that's missing in all that? There's not a thing that's missing. What's missing is Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? And what Jesus is doing here, in a sense, is He's teaching her a lesson 
both about the future and about the present. And He is really saying to her, now fix your eyes on Me, because I am the resurrection and the life. And she makes this very straightforward confession of her faith. She believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But you see, He's leading her on. He's leading her on from a, an orthodox Jewish confession of the truth. If you've ever been in a church where they have stood up and said the Apostles' Creed, as some churches do every Lord's Day, you will have confessed that you believe in the resurrection of the body. And she believes that. But you see what Jesus is pressing on her, not the resurrection of the body, not faith that resurrection will take place, but faith in the one who is the resurrection. You know, that's a real, really important point for, for some people. I remember a, a lady in a congregation I served, an elderly and small lady coming up to me with a little smile on her face, very conspirator, conspiratorially saying to me, you know, people around here think I've been a Christian all my life. Never doubted the creed. If anyone had said, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? She would have said, of course I believe in the resurrection of the dead. She might even have handbagged you if you doubted that she believed in the resurrection of the dead. But I'll never forget her saying, you know, I really only came to trust in the Lord Jesus two years ago. So, this is what, this is what Jesus is pressing on practical Martha. And then you notice Mary now comes into the picture. And it rather looks to me as though <coughs> Jesus says to Martha, now go back to the house and tell Mary I want to see her. That's not explicitly said, but it is implicit, isn't it, in verse 28? When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Now, this is very interesting because apart from anything else, you see what Jesus is doing? He's getting her to do something. Isn't that interesting? She's sitting here. She's surrounded by people who are trying to comfort her in a traditional Jewish way by the looks of things, and she needs to be got out of there. So, Jesus is not going to go to her. She is to come to Jesus. And it looks as though her first words were exactly the same, but you know, you can say the same words in a, in a different spirit. I think there's something less matter-of-fact about the way in which Mary responds here. And she comes, and uh, it's as though it suddenly all comes out of her. She falls down in front of Jesus. Her words are full of emotion. And interestingly, Jesus seems to, Jesus seems to deal with her in a slightly different way. Lord, she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, notice the difference. With Martha, do you see the difference between the knowledge of the truth and the knowledge of the one who is the truth? 
Do you see the difference between believing there's going to be a resurrection and trusting in me as the resurrection and as the one who is and who gives eternal life? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Now, there was none of this with uh, Martha. Interesting, isn't it? With Martha, it's like straightforward. With Mary, it's as though Jesus absorbs into Himself the emotion of the situation. He was deeply moved in spirit and was greatly troubled. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute, but what I want you to notice is this, that Jesus is all-sufficient for both of these women, but He handles them in slightly different ways, just as we would handle our children in slightly different ways. Remember, my mother used to say to me, I treat you, and I had an older brother called Kenneth, I treat you and Kenneth in exactly the same way. I used to say to her, no, you don't. You treat us with equal love, but you, you tolerate a lot more in me, <laughs> you see. And this is the great thing about Jesus. He's all-sufficient for all of us, but He's everything each of us actually needs. He's everything each of us actually needs. And it really is a wonderful thing to know. Uh, I'm a big Johnny Cash fan. I know I don't look like a big Johnny Cash fan, and it's a surprise to you. But there's one Johnny Cash song that really kind of, you know, gets under my skin a little, though it's a great song, and it's about having your own personal Jesus. And uh, there's something quite wrong about that, isn't there? You don't have your own personal Jesus. You have the same Jesus as everybody else. But there's also something quite right about it, isn't there? He is the same for all who trust Him yesterday, today, and forever. But He is also the one who ministers to each of us. And that's true when, you know, the New Testament tells us that when the Word of God is expounded in the grace of the Holy Spirit, it's Jesus Himself who preaches to us. I won't pause to go into that. It's Jesus Himself who preaches, which is the explanation of what happens when you preach. The people in totally different situations may say to you, that was exactly what I needed. And you, you spotted them in the congregation. You're thinking, this is exactly what Mrs. Smith or Mr. Jones doesn't need. But you see, when Jesus is held before us, He's not only sufficient for all of us, but He's sufficient for each of us. And so, there is Jesus' personal ministry. And then in verses 33 to 38, there is this amazing description, unparalleled really, until we get to the events of the Garden of Gethsemane, this amazing description of Jesus' deep emotions. Now, we noticed last time how, if I can put it this way, in a proper way, Jesus was in complete control of His emotions. It must have been overwhelming to Him to hear that Lazarus was sick, and every human instinct would be to go because he was his friend and he loved him, but he, 
You see, he understood that his hour had not yet come and that his, his emotions would have to be contained. And now he is gone and his hour really has come, as we'll see in the next chapter. And uh, the emotions are on display. In John's gospel, this is the supreme moment where what John had said in the prologue is spread out before us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, we see His glory here. Of course, we're going to see His glory in the resurrection of Lazarus, but this is where we also see Jesus' glory. And this is, a, you know, funnily enough, you know, men, they don't talk things out. They bottle up their emotions. And I don't know whether it's because men have been, by and large, the people who have translated the New Testament and the people who have expounded the New Testament, but all the way through the history of the Christian church, our translations and our interpreters have bottled up Jesus' emotions just at this point. Because John says things here about Jesus that are, are almost uncontainable by us in the strength of the language that he uses. And, and you see that in our modern translation. It says, this is, this is the English Standard Version, then Jesus deeply moved. What does that mean, deeply moved? What it really means is Jesus was angry. Jesus was angry. And He comes to the tomb. And He is deeply moved again. And you see the same language is used earlier on. Uh, when he's speaking to Mary and is with Mary, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. Now, that's the language that's been used earlier on in John's gospel about the man at the pool, you remember, who was trying to get into the water when the, the, the angel that was supposed to come down came down and troubled the water. So, you, you're to think of Jesus inwardly, as it were, that, that there are waves of emotion going on in Him. What is also interesting is that the verb that's used here is, is sorry for the grammar lesson, it's a reflexive verb. It's, it's the idea of… Uh, Jesus being in control of the troubling. So, there is, there is an anger and there is, a, there is a troubling. And perhaps the, perhaps the reason for this language that John uses is because he's, he's thinking of Psalm 41 and 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Where a kind of, there's a kind of difference between me being cast down and my soul being cast down. In a sense in which he's, he's, the person is looking at his soul and asking why it's cast down. There's this, there's this kind of dualism's not the right word. It's not a good word usually, but there's this, there's this tension. And of course, there's a tension here in Jesus because He is standing. Uh, he is standing… Uh, th think of Jesus as, uh, as being the rope in a tug of war, and He is standing in the middle holding both ends, and one of these ends 
is the depth of His love for this family, and the other is the horror of what has happened to this family, what death has done to this family, how, as Paul says in Romans 5, sin has come to reign in death. And it… You see, the, the, the reality of His emotions, Jesus was not a stoic. Uh, Jesus… We mustn't ever think that Jesus lived bottling it all up. And this, they, they see this, and they say, he, boy, did He love Him. But, but what's going on here? All kinds of explanations. He was angry at the fuss and the in the professional mourners, or, or he was angry with the things that were being said. I mean, they were saying, you know, if he'd been here, he could have, he could have raised them up. That was one thing to take from Martha and Mary, another thing to take from these people who are, who are perhaps uh, being snide about it. But he's not, he's not being angry with the mourners or with what they're saying. This goes far deeper than that. He's angry with what death does. He is angry about it. And he's torn. You see, it's one thing to be angry. It's another thing to be angry because death has brought your dear friend low and has done this to these women for whom you have such a concern. And it's a little insight into what it meant for the Lord Jesus to be the Word made flesh. Yes, He's the Word who created all things, but this is the wonder of it. You see, when John says that, and we hear it every Christmas, we say, ho-hum, the Word became flesh, Um, and perhaps don't take in that He took our flesh in all its frailty and in all the variety of its emotions, and He's dwelling with them. Um, he's, he's there with them, which makes it all the more wonderful that Hebrews says He's the same today as He was yesterday, that He's not changed in heaven, that He, he has this empathy with us, And it's all expressed here in these deep emotions that come to the surface in this unique way in John's gospel because he's full of rage against death and the sin that lies behind it and because he's he's full of love. I don't know if they study Dylan Thomas any longer in high school, do they? His famous poem, Do Not Go Gently, Do Not Go, you know, Into That Good Night. He was, he was, do you know, do you know, do you know who he was angry with in that poem? His father. He was angry with his father for just dying and not fighting. And in a way, that's twisted, isn't it? And it's superficial even although it touches something that, alas, Dylan Thomas never seemed to grasp, that Jesus grasped. 
he was angry. Not because Lazarus did not go gently into that good night, because that night was dark and the result of sin. And all his holy anger against what Satan has done comes out here. In a way, it's one of those places in the New Testament where I think we learn how much the Psalms must have meant to Jesus because He was able to express His own emotions in the language that had been used in a shadow fashion by David and the other psalmists. And of course, all of this, this is the marvel of this. There's, there's this engagement with these women. Is there, is, there, is there no… Do you see how small we make Jesus? Here He is engaging with these women in different ways, and sometimes we fully insist that everybody gets dealt with in exactly the same way by Jesus. And now here is this expression of emotion that, of course, Christians and our translators have always found difficult to handle because we're speaking here about the Word of God, but we're forgetting that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, it's with these two stages in the background that we come to the third stage in the last verses of our section, 39 to 34, when Jesus is deeply moved again, and He comes to the tomb, and He demonstrates His resurrection power. Of course, the whole point of the delay has been that Jesus wants to demonstrate He's really raising the dead here, that Lazarus really is dead, so dead that Martha says, and there's this discussion that people have, must have been watching to see who would win the discussion. Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha says, please don't take away the stone. There'll be an odor. And then, okay, take away the stone. And this extraordinary scene where Jesus says with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. You know, some of the early fathers used to love to say it was as well, He named Lazarus. Otherwise, all the dead would have come forth. And Lazarus comes forth, staggering out. He's, he's bound with the grave clothes, and Jesus, Jesus tells them to, to set him free. Now, what's the message here? Well, in a sense, if the message thus far in this passage has been Jesus is the Word made flesh dwelling among us, the message here is Jesus is the Word. Um, let me try and get at this in this way. Did your mother ever tell you, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you? That's probably my generation our generation, those of you who have a slight smile, you remember your parents telling you that, and you knew it wasn't true, and they knew it wasn't true. Why? Because words can, of course, simply be descriptive, but they can also be what the language philosophers call performative. They not only describe things, they do things. 
When, when there's a couple standing here and David Robertson says, I now pronounce you to be husband and wife, those words are not just descriptive, they're performative, they're doing something. Just like the names that people throw at us do something to us, they hurt us. They can deeply hurt us. You see, when we understand that that's true about words, we understand what John meant when he originally said in John chapter 1, it was the Word that became flesh. That is to say, the performative Word, the Word that by its power brought creation into being, and by that same Word can bring dead Lazarus back to life. And this is astonishing, isn't it? But it's how… it's fascinating, isn't it? It's how God works. Um, it's how God worked in the original creation. It's how God worked at the incarnation. He just said to Mary, that which is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. It's going to happen at the end of time. Remember when Paul says, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout of command, and that shout of command will not be, Lazarus, come forth, but all of you come forth, because the one who is the creating world is the one who is also the re-creating world. And so here, in a way, the whole gospel was being spread before these people. The very thing that Paul says at the end of Romans 5, sin reigned in death, and then Jesus comes, and righteousness reigns to eternal life. And He becomes not only Mary and Martha's own personal Jesus. He becomes Lazarus's own personal Jesus. And you see, in a sense, he's doing the same thing with each of them. He is saying, I'm all sufficient for all the needs of all of God's people all of the time. Do you believe this? Yes. But the bigger question is, I'm all sufficient for your particular needs today. Do you believe this? And here in this amazing narrative, what John had said right at the beginning is before our eyes, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and then you see, those are facts. Word became flesh, dwelt among us. But the last statement is a response. It's always the response of faith. I mean, in a sense, if you've not seen this, responded this way, you, faith has not come alive in you. We beheld His glory. So, whatever our need is going to be this week, uh, we learn from this passage, Jesus, He's the same 
today as he was yesterday. And he wants to show us how glorious a Savior he really is. Let's trust him all over again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way in which you make yourself known to us in your Word, for your grace, for this amazing story that many of us have known almost all our lives, for your special love for this family, and then your particular love for each of them. We thank you that you do love us all, but we thank you that you love each of us and that each of us is able to say, like Paul, although our experience is so different from, uh, from his, the Son of God loved me, and He gave Himself for me. Seal this love, we pray, in our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. Singing. The song, who has held the ocean in his hand, who has numbered every grain of sand, kings and nations, trembles at his voice, all creation rises to rejoice. And Sinclair was preaching and was thinking about the fact that we have this God who is able to empathize with us because he is also human and the wonder of Christ. So we're going to sing these words and then please remain standing for the benediction. <laughs>